0: Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. It is good to be with you this morning. I'm getting over a little, uh, kind of a head cold, and, and so uh, I've been a little stuffy, and, and I've been taking Night Quill and Day Quill and, and those different things. And uh, really excited. Just a moment ago, we met with those who have signed up to do our scripture reading. Um, on Sunday morning before the sermon. So we had about a half a dozen people. And just to let you know, that group, uh, that number is not locked. So we're always going to be looking for more people. And uh, we have someone, a part of the group, who's going to be seeking out um, uh, people to do that. And so we're excited about that. And so um, I just wanted to share a moment of vulnerability. As as I was talking with um, the group, and, you know, some people are more confident than others, and, you know, you grow in, in an area of, of gifting, you know, whether it's public speaking or whether it's singing or serving or whatever it is. And uh, a lot of people, a lot of you don't know this about me, but I, I suffer incredibly from social anxiety, especially things that I haven't done before. So in all of my years of pulpit ministry, I've never had a little sit down where I went through a workshop with people. Uh, to do public scripture reading. so the first time ever, and I had notes and everything, but I was incredibly nervous, and I was fumbling over my words. And even at this moment, I kind of have like a tension headache, where right in my temples, I feel a lot of pressure. So just to let you know, you're not alone if you feel uh, a sense of, you know, um, self-doubt or trepidation or unworthiness or any of those things. We all struggle with that on some level Turn your Bibles to Luke. We're returning to the book of Luke. And for those of you... Um, If you weren't here last week, I preached a sermon on the presidential election last week, for those of you who weren't here. And it's online. And um, so um, you can get online. And we have not only our sermons on our website, but we also have a podcast on iTunes. And uh, I love podcasts on iTunes because you can put Luke chapter 6 continuing through the book of Luke, starting in, the, in verse 39, going through verse 35. The word of God. <clears throat> he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone, when he is fully trained... His mouth speaks. Father God, now we pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit, and that your presence would illumine our hearts and our minds, and that we might orient our thoughts and our affections to the truth found here in this passage of Scripture that Jesus spoke. Lord, uh, these truths are relevant for us today because your word uh, never changes. Your word is timeless and your truth is timeless. Your word stands forever. May we be transformed by it through the power of the Holy Spirit in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as we move through the book of Luke, I always, I always like to do a little bit of a recap to kind of explain where we've come from. And in the beginning of Luke, we have the birth narrative that takes up roughly two chapters and those are big chapters. And then we have Jesus' wilderness temptation and Jesus' own calling, where the Father speaks from heaven and the Spirit empowers him. And Jesus goes forward and goes forth, and and he uh, is doing miracles and doing things that people have never, ever seen before. And through the process of going through Capernaum and the upper regions of Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, he encounters the disciples. They're not disciples at the moment. at the, At that time, they're just people, and some of them are related to Jesus. You know, so it's like you know your you know your mother's uncle's cousin's nephew. You know, you, you've heard of them, but you don't know them very well. And they get to know Jesus, and Jesus actually calls some of these people. Some of them he's related to, and like John, uh, and then some are just local fishermen. And as he um, gathers his disciples, he is starting to crystallize. His message, what his message is about. And as he does that, his words and message are distinguished from the existing teachers, which are the scribes and the Pharisees and the experts in the law. And as he teaches, those people come out to see him. They're investigating, they want to know about Jesus' ministry. That's okay. That's a miracle I just performed right now. There's two of us in here. Don't be embarrassed. Um, So Jesus is being scrutinized by the religious teachers and leaders. And one of the things that Jesus does is he seeks opportunities to distinguish and contrast what it means to truly follow God. And that's exactly where we find ourselves today in this passage is Jesus is unpacking or explaining the measure of a disciple. The Pharisees had their own disciples. The teachers of the law and the scribes, they had their disciples. They were learned men, and they knew the law of Moses, and they had, you know, young, upcoming uh, disciples and learners. And the, 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 um, Jesus' own disciples, of course, know who a lot of these men are. And what Jesus does is gives us here in this passage four pictures of a disciple, or what it, what it looks like to be a disciple. And... These four pictures that he gives us to illustrate the measure of of true discipleship is, one, blind leaders of the blind. That that, that doesn't illustrate what it looks like to be a disciple, but certainly the wrong kind of discipleship. Blind leaders of the blind. The other picture is that disciples become like their teachers. The necessity of a disciple for self-examination And then finally, disciples and teachers, like trees, are known by what they produce. So these four pictures, we're going to move through them. So first, blind leaders of the blind. Verse 39, Jesus says, Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? And Jesus chooses a word picture here that contains a certain absurdity. Now, we've heard it probably all of our lives, right? If the blind, you know, lead the blind, they'll both fall in a pit, right? It's just part of our vernacular. It's part of the air we breathe. Even unbelievers, people who aren't familiar, they've heard that saying because it's so famous. But when Jesus gives this image, this picture of a blind person leading a blind person, it's meant to be somewhat absurd, and even comical. And he's talking specifically about the Pharisees. If you remember in verse 7, when we were back in verse 7 of the same chapter, it said that the Pharisees watched Jesus closely to see if they could find a reason to accuse him. So the Pharisees, right, they have vision and they're watching And, you know, as we move through, Jesus is in the the home healing the leper or um, he's, you know, healing um, Peter's mother-in-law. And the Pharisees are always kind of in the shadows and in the corners looking at what he's doing. Even the situation on the Sabbath, they were seeking out an opportunity to accuse him. And Jesus is warning his disciples not to follow these blind leaders because both leader and follower... Even though they appear to have vision, they're, they're really blind, and they'll fall into a ditch. And the image is meant to be ridiculous, because blind people don't lead other blind people. Blind people need what? Well, they need someone who can see to lead them by the arm. Uh, I'm, I'm, I marvel at how um, you know, sometimes blind people can um, learn the skills of a walking stick and walk on their own. Um, but uh, often I've also seen blind people who have a loved one or a spouse or a mother or father or brother taking them by the hand and leading them. So the imagery of a blind person trying to lead another blind person is totally ridiculous. It's completely absurd. There, if you, um, I saw a documentary on Saddam Hussein during the first Gulf War. And he ruled with such fear and intimidation that as Saddam Hussein was strategizing around his table with his generals, uh, he made incredible blunders against the allied coalition. And a lot of his generals knew that what he was doing was totally foolhardy. Saddam Hussein himself had no real military training. But because they feared him... They never spoke up. They never said a word. He was surrounded by people too afraid to tell him of his miscalculations in his military strategies against the U.S. And in some sense, right, everyone sees the emperor's nakedness but himself. He was blind. He was a blind leader. And he led his nation into a ditch. Well, you know, proud people are always scandalized by blindness the pharisees and their disciples were that way they were ignorant of their own inability to grasp who jesus was and for this reason jesus says in mark 14 excuse me mark 4 and 12 they are seeing but never perceiving hearing and never understanding and in romans 11 and 8 paul says god gave them a spirit of stupor eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. They had eyes, they could see, but they could not perceive, and that's what Jesus is getting at. Now in contrast, Jesus distinguishes his own ministry from the Pharisees by announcing that his ministry is to do what? Do you remember in Luke 4:18 when Jesus announces the purpose of his ministry? It was to bring recovery of sight to the blind. Luke 4.18. Jesus said, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. And this brings us to our next point, which is this. Choose your teachers carefully because inevitably you'll become like your teacher. So point, picture one. Don't follow blind people because they'll lead you in a ditch. So, logical next step then choose your teachers carefully because ultimately you're going to be like your teacher. In verse 40, Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher, her teacher. Self-deceived teachers are the worst kind of teachers. Now, there's a video on YouTube. Um, and if you, when you leave church today, you can look it up. And it's just Google, uh, Deluded Tai Chi Master. Uh, now, if you ask me, how do you come across these videos, Jordan? I don't know. You know, one minute you're reading a news article, and the next minute you're watching squirrels surf, or something like that, or water ski. That's just how the internet is. I don't even know how I came across this video, but there's this video of it may be Korea or Japan or China, and it's essentially this martial arts master who uses the Tai Chi energy. Now you've seen Tai Chi. We went to Chicago recently, and we went to Millennium Park where the Bean is, the big you know chrome bean. And in the corner there were you know people doing you know Tai Chi and they're harnessing some kind of energy. Well, there are some people who do that for martial arts, and there's this. Tai Chi master, guy in his, maybe his 70s. And he's in a dojo with all of these students and they're all, they've all got their, you know, their martial arts gear on, you know, the white uniforms with the, with the belts. And they're all coming up to him to fight him. And he's doing like this and they're all being blown back from like 10, 15 feet away. And he's, they're literally coming at him, you know, a mile a minute. And, you know, <laughs> it's, see smiling, but I mean, it's a, it's, it's not a joke. They've all been following him and learning from him, and they're all young guys, and they believe him. <clears throat> so as they approach him, and he goes like this, they go, you know, like that. And one of them, he goes like this, and they go, you know, they, they bob up and down. It's, it's, it's crazy. Well, he puts out an ad that anyone who can beat him, you know, he, a challenge, $5,000 he'll pay to anyone who believes him, because not only do his disciples, his students, believe him but he believes them because they're feeding into each other. So some guy comes, and like, like I said, this is in China or somewhere. Some guy comes, and he's, he's, just a, he's just a judo guy, I guess, and he gets in there. And I mean, and this fight starts, and the first pop, boom, he hits the guy in the face, and he falls to the ground. And the fight's over. And all of the students are utterly shocked. <clears throat> Deluded teachers are the worst kind of teachers And we're always amazed when we see people who are deluded, stories of people who are tragically caught up in cults, like the Branch Davidians, or David Koresh, you know, or the Jonestown Massacre with Jim Jones in the 70s. And what's amazing is many of these people are smart, educated people. Uh, These are not, you know, uh, foolish people. Many of these people are smart people. Um... But they adopted these crazy ideas because they've followed these teachers who were blind. And they themselves have become blinded. In Matthew 7.15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are wolves. And in Mark 13.22, For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders that would deceive even the elect if that were possible. So false teachers, like dictators, they isolate themselves so as not to hear criticism. And they lock themselves in an echo chamber until all that's in their world is the sound of their own voice and their own ideas. And that's what had certainly happened to the Pharisees. And Jesus is... Cautioning his disciples against that. And this is why from time to time you may hear me expose false teaching and false teachers. Not because I want to pick on anyone, but because I want to protect the flock. And, you know, crazy ideas pop up, yes, even in churches. As a matter of fact, churches can tend to be a breeding ground for heresy and unorthodox views. And so from time to time, we will identify those false views. John Calvin said, pastors have two voices. One for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. Uh, I also spend many hours weekly studying to make sure that I've carefully handled the word of God so as not to become a deluded teacher myself. And the reason I preach through books of the Bible is to avoid preaching my own pet doctrines. Because if it was up to me to preach the things I specifically wanted to preach about, I would naturally choose things that I like to talk about. right? We all have our own particular set of interests and preferences. But reading and preaching through an entire book of the Bible forces us to deal with the text as the text gives itself to us. So, a disciple must choose his teachers carefully. And then the third point Jesus makes is the necessity for a disciple to regularly engage in self-examination. And he says in verse 41, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. And this is another picture Jesus gives that uses a somewhat comical image can you imagine someone walking across a room with a little, literally a two-by-four sticking out of their eyeball socket and saying, hey, hey, you've got a speck in your eye. Let me, let me help you with that. I mean, the image itself is absurd. It's another comical image. It's ridiculous. Somebody trying to <clears throat> remove sawdust. You know, Jesus is a carpenter, right? So the imagery he's using is from the carpenter shop. Let me help you get some sawdust out of your eye. You've got some sawdust in your eye. You know, buddy, you've got a two-by-four in your eye. And so this is the image Jesus gives, this absurd image. But his point is clear. If you're going to be my disciple, don't you dare act like the Pharisees who hypocritically point out the faults of others when they themselves are guilty of the same exact sins they accuse others of. That's the point he's trying to make. Now, he uses this word hypocrite, and it means someone who doesn't act in accord with what uh, we think it means. We think the word hypocrite means uh, when you're not acting in line with what you really are, right? So in our minds, we have kind of this popular idea that Christians can be hypocritical and what we're really doing is not really not being faithful to what we are, you know, because we're really Christians and we're really, we really believe the word of God. And so when we're duplicitous or when we act in a way that doesn't comport with that, we're being hypocrites. But Jesus uses the word differently. In fact, in his time, the word meant something different. Um, <clears throat> the word was used differently, and it meant an actor or a pretender or a role player, which is not someone who is not acting in line with what they really are, it means someone who is completely pretending they are not, in any sense what they are pretending to be. A role player. I've got this picture here, this picture of somebody you know walking down the street with you know, bearing his cross, you know, and it, you could see the look on his face, he has an anguished look like. You know, this is, this is tough stuff. But uh, if you drive by quickly, you don't notice the next picture. He's got some wheels on that cross, making it a whole lot easier for him. You know, right? So, I mean, I just use that as an illustration of, you know, not, not uh, being uh, what God wants us to be. I don't think Jesus had that in mind when he said, take up your cross and follow me. <clears throat> I'm sure he's a good guy. Um, But the Pharisees weren't true followers um, who were being two-faced. They were godless pretenders. And Jesus is saying, don't be a godless pretender. True disciples are more concerned with vanquishing their own sins than they are with other people's sins. Now, I don't know all of your background, all of everyone's background, I know my own background, I grew up in somewhat um, legalistic, and a lot of us may have, may have that kind of background, where um, because we wanted to stand for truth, we wanted to stand for what was right, we were, you know, pointing out sins in our culture, and there's a place and a time for that. There's a time to name things for what they are, to call a spade a spade, and to be clear and unequivocal when something goes against God's word and standard for holiness. But that's altogether different than having an attitude that thrives off of, you know, this insatiable appetite to point out faults in everyone. In fact, our last sermon, two Sundays ago, when we were, when we were back in Luke, we were talking about Jesus' words to judge not, lest you be judged, which is... An admonition against the critical and judgmental spirit. So a disciple has to be in the constant habit of self-examination. Self-examination recognizes that the seeds of every sin is in your own heart. You know, we think, I could never do that. I don't think, any, I, I don't see how anyone could do that. But the truth is, is you know, those seeds are in our heart. <clears throat> Calvin again said, the human heart is a factory of idols. And we have to walk in such a way as to examine ourselves and look at ourselves and constantly be vigilant against our own habits to fall into sin. And often pointing the sins out of others is a way not to deal <clears throat> with your own. Regular self-examination causes you to have mercy on the faults of others. And so the validity of righteous character Jesus is getting at is not based on the ability to give assent to moral absolutes, but your commitment to live what you believe. I said commitment. I didn't say perfectly carrying out that ideal, that ideal, right? There's always... We're always trying to shorten the gap between what we believe and what we live, right? That's what Christian living is all about. It's drawing closer and closer and closer through the work of and power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God to conform us more and more into the likeness and image of Jesus, where that commitment to live out what we believe draws us closer and closer and closer to it and to God. And this leads us into Jesus' last point. That disciples, like trees, are known through what they produce. Verse 43, Jesus said, For no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. For Jesus, character and action are inseparable. And those who attempt to tear them apart are guilty of hypocrisy. I worked with a guy one time and we were talking about the Lord and he told me his brother was an assistant pastor. He was a pastor. And he said, um, Jordan, I feel like I have faith. Um, maybe you can help me find out if I'm a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? And I said, well, let me go back to your statement a minute ago. You said you had faith. I said, but faith is always followed by action. If tr- faith is true faith, it means that we, there's something we do. That we live our lives. We we behave in certain ways that comport with what we believe. And he said, oh, then I'm, I, I don't think I'm a Christian then. And that was an incredible um, recognition on his, on his part. Because often we want to simply say, um, look, we're saved by grace through faith, which we are. But true faith is not a faith that is alone. Right? We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith. But we're saved by faith alone. But a real faith... ...is never alone. It always is followed by actions. Joel Green in his commentary says... ...in Luke's pre-Freudian world... ...a person's inside... ...is accessible... ...not through his or her psychology... ...but through his or her social interactions. In other words... ...you can tell what someone is like... ...you can tell the things a person values... You can tell whether a profession of faith is authentic or not by looking at what people do, how they behave and how they treat others. People like trees are known through what they produce. And this is why James says, "Faith without works is dead." In James 2:26. I may have told you the story when I was 18 uh, in California, Los Angeles um, a friend of mine, his dad, ran a valet parking at a fancy steakhouse in Pasadena, and on New Year's, the Rose Bowl and the Rose Parade would come in, and people from all over the country would come in, and they would, they would want to park. They would be looking for parking, desperately looking for parking all through the night. <clears throat> so we would ask different businesses if we could use their parking lot, we'd give them a cut of the money. And so I stood from, you know, 2 in the morning till 9 in the morning with a sign, you know, 10, 15 bucks for parking or whatever it was. And that was a lot back in 1992. And so as the cars started flooding in, I may have told this story, but I was, you know, I was doing this. You know, I was, I was just, you know, I was doing everything I could to get people to parking my lot. I wanted to be successful. And, you know, come 7 30 in the morning, it was all filled up. And there was a guy across the street, and the whole time, all night, he was just, he was just doing that. And he had like one or two cars in his lot. And when it was time to kind of like, you know, call it a day, it was like nine in the morning and my lot was filled and I had been working all night. I walked over to him and I said, hey man, you know, how's it going? He goes, well, I haven't had many, have many, uh, you know, cars in my lot. And I said, well, I filled mine up. He goes, well, I got faith. And I said, well, you know, faith without works is dead. (laughs) So, uh, listen, our faith We may believe things, but um, our faith, if if it's not accompanied by works, it doesn't mean a whole lot. Um, Jesus is saying, the faith and character and measure of a disciple is always accompanied by good fruit. And what's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control certainly the opposite of the character of the Pharisees. Not all the Pharisees, but most of them. And in the agrarian world that Jesus lived in, this illustration about trees bringing forth good fruit is irrefutable. It's an indisputable point that Jesus makes. The illustration about good trees, about figs not coming from thorn bushes, grapes coming from bramble bushes... This point is irrefutable. No one would have stood up and disagreed and say and have said, you know, that's wrong. You know, tumbleweeds yield apples, you know, or whatever it is. And so this final analogy that Jesus gives demonstrates that both speech and action actually emanate from the heart. When we speak flippantly, when we fire off the handle and say something that's hurtful to others, it's not just a mistake, but it's usually a reflection of what's in us. It emanates from our heart. Hurtful and mean uh, and you know, <clears throat> evil things don't just come out of the mouth. They're grounded somewhere. And this is why Jesus says in verse 45... The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And the point is that Jesus, uh, excuse me, the point is that the disciples, that disciples in general and teachers ought to have bridled tongues. Like it says in James one twenty six, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Uh, we tend to live in Paul's theology a lot. And there's nothing wrong with Paul's theology. Paul's theology is uh, high on the grace factor that we talk about a lot. The idea that, um, that there is something that justifies us in the sight of God besides our actions. Uh, but Jesus balances out that language by telling us that words matter, actions matter, the way you treat other people matters, the things you say to your children, to your friends, to your co-workers, to your parents, to your spouse, those Things matter. And if you find yourself regularly saying things you regret, then you might be in need of some real self-examination. Bitter people say bitter things. Heretics speak heresies. Judgmental people are always talking about someone else. And the hateful always hate first in their words before their deeds. In Matthew 15, 18, Jesus says, What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles a person. Jesus and Peter are having a conversation about foods that are unclean, and Jesus corrects his thinking, right? There's a new new covenant Jesus is introducing. It's not what goes into a person that defiles him, right? Shellfish or pork. But what comes out of that person? For out of the heart, Jesus says in Matthew 15, 19, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Mention of the heart shows that Jesus is not only interested in what is done, But why? Motives are important. When when you're thinking about actions, a disciple is ultimately measured by what they produce. Jesus wants us to be fully-fledged followers. Not just in word, but also in deed. Totally transformed from the inside out. And that can only happen when we live our lives in a way that is oriented around God's purposes. So what are you producing? What kind of tree are you? Are you known for good fruit or bad fruit? Is your life one of The fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Or is your life known by judgmentalism, criticism, behavior that does not comport to faith in Jesus? Are you producing the peaceable fruit of righteousness in your life in a way that no one observing you would ever be able to deny your faith in Christ. Let's pray. God, now we, we take a hard look at ourselves as we read this passage. And we don't want to make the mistake of trying to measure up and earn our salvation by making a laundry list of good deeds over bad deeds. That is not what These words are here in Luke. But rather that our life overall is characterized...